All right, good morning, everyone. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study uh, of Brian Wolfmuller's text, Has American Christianity Failed? We've been looking at uh, the four key components of American Christianity as Wolfmuller sees it, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. And we finished our discussion of that last week, then having gone into, or maybe it was, was it two weeks ago already? I think it was two weeks ago. And then um, we are going into this idea of uh, the pendulum of pride and despair. You can find that on page 22. And if memory serves, that's about where we left off. The pendulum of pride and despair. So there at the, uh, the very beginning of that section, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm all direct our focus away from Jesus and toward ourselves. They are all different shapes of legalism, a theology of the law. They all, in their own way, choke out the voice of the gospel, the promise of the forgiveness of sins for the sake of Jesus. They are the fountains of the failure of American Christianity. Okay, so if we look at revivalism, and it, and it might help you if you want to turn back on page 9 to this table he gives, but if you look at revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm, they have to do not with what God is doing for us, but the way in which we meet God ourselves by way of our decision or um, retain our relationship with God by way of uh, growth in good works or have direct, unmediated to, to, um, direct and unmediated access to God, usually by our own um, piety or our own preparations. And then enthusiasm, of course, that the spiritual life happens inside of us. So what you see is um, this mixture of what man is doing. And if man is doing the doing, then that's law. And if it is God that's doing the doing for us, then that's gospel. And so this is why Wolfmuller makes the claim that revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm um, take our focus away from Jesus, put the focus on ourselves, and thus also our different shapes or kinds of legalism. Does that make sense? Because um, we're, you know, if we, if we kind of grasp this binary between law and gospel, we want to make sure and use that profitably. But if we, if we do that, then we can diagnose a lot of American Christianity as a religion of pull yourself up by the bootstraps, do better, work harder, um, and then God will bless you. So kind of this if-then spirituality. And that is, uh, that is a spirituality of the law, not, not the gospel, not grace, not a gift, but earning merit, those kinds of things, just redefined into uh, modern language. 
All right, uh, continuing with Wolfmuller, just the next paragraph. The most important thing in the church is Christ and the preaching of his gospel. If the promise of forgiveness is not heard, we lose everything good that Jesus has for us. Christians are marked by hearing the voice of Jesus, John 10, 27, and that voice is the voice of mercy and forgiveness, the voice of the gospel. Right, so the law without the gospel is, un is unprofitable, ultimately. It can do nothing but show us what God's will for us is and then show us how we fall short of that, of that will. Now, if you add the gospel, the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, his atonement for our sins, his perfect righteousness credited to us, then, then the law becomes profitable. That's why St. Paul says, thus the law is established, because then we see it as the will of our dear Heavenly Father, who loves us and forgives us and yet guides us in the way we should go. And then we're set free to see the law not, not as slaves, but as sons. And that's the that's maybe the next major move that Pastor Wolfmuller is going to lead us on. But we are going to tarry for a moment here on this, what he calls, pendulum of pride and despair. All right, so the, uh, and feel free to interrupt. Feel free to wave a hand in the air if I'm moving too fast, or if you've got a question or comment or something to add. Happy to entertain that. We do, we don't yet have the in-room microphones installed, so... When, when I'm seeing this, is, isn't this the same thing that Paul has to talk to Peter about of his little attitude of the law and gospel? Because he's telling him, hey, you have to become a Jew and be circumcised first. So we're seeing it even from the beginning of the foundation of the church, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, there's a kind of legalism there. I mean, there... There's a technical argument at work there, but we can extrapolate broader principles from it, no doubt about it. The, the question in the early church is, is faith in Christ enough, or do you also have to be circumcised and live according to the ceremonial laws? That's really the question. This is where a lot of Paul's rhetoric comes, that you know, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness and this kind of thing. And um, Oh, thank you so much. So... <laughs> Be able to start breathing again here in a minute. Um, so, so I think I think to simplify the argument and turn it into a more broad principle or dynamic is salvation Jesus plus something. Whether that something is circumcision or the ceremonial works of the law or even the moral works of the law or X, Y, or Z, whatever you want to fill in there, Jesus plus something equals salvation. And the answer of St. Paul is no. If you add anything to that equation, you've fallen from grace because grace by definition is God's free gift to you. And so if you're adding something of your own doing to that free gift, it's no longer a free gift. You've destroyed grace. You've fallen from grace, Paul, uh, St. Paul writes. And so that's the dynamic at play. Yeah. And I think in American Christianity, it's not that anyone's going around saying this as such or explicitly. It's that there's this implicit, implicit and shift in emphasis, like this kind of subtle thing that takes place where it's like, of course I believe that I'm justified you know, by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Um, but that simply becomes something that sort of gets 
put on your church's website or tucked in the way back recesses of your mind. And then every single Sunday, every single day you live as a Christian is about me and what I've got to do and this and that and what's God thinking and I've got to do this to please him. And, and so the whole thing ends up, even though, even though you have it formally correct in your head or your church website, functionally, in terms of how you live, things go askew and become imbalanced and the emphasis gets on the wrong syllable and you fall into the trap of American Christianity. Yes? So, um, I'm thinking about being Lutheran and I'm thinking about being Lutheran and how important our sacraments are. And you know, I can't imagine not having communion. I can't imagine not being baptized. I can't imagine these things. Or to have the office of the keys. I cannot imagine it. But a non-denominational might say, oh yeah, we just believe in Christ alone. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard people here say, I don't need to study the Bible. I know it. Mm. I'm saved. Mm. God loves me. Your faith is stronger than well, that's possible, I guess. But You'll have to give me names and phone numbers. Okay, I will. I've got a lot of work to do there, apparently. I, I have it on my computer. Um, no, um, but, but we wouldn't call that adiaphora. I wouldn't call it adiaphora. I mean, it's like in, integral to my faith. Right, absolutely. You know, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about... Um, mysticism, the unmediated uh, and direct access to God. And one of, the, one of the points that I kind of drew out from my own pastoral experiences, it wasn't so much native to Wolf Mueller's text, is when, when you have a, a spirituality of unme- quote-unquote unmediated access, I find that to be only an abstract truth. In reality, there's always mediation. In other words, if you remove the sacraments, you always end up replacing them with something else. The low-hanging fruit and the easy critique of this is if you go into a non-sacramental Christian church, generally speaking, since their worship isn't centered around the word and sacraments, their worship is going to be centered around the other means by which Christ comes to you, which, is, which tends to be uh, music. It tends to be feeling. So you've got the, and this is why it's even come to be called the worship experience. Because the entire thing is to cause you to experience the presence of God. Not by means of word and sacrament, but by means of these other methodologies. And those take on various forms. I mean, some much more reverent than others. But this is where you get pastors driving motorcycles into the middle of their megachurches, too, because they're trying to create that excitement and feeling of like, wow, this guy's so on fire for the Lord. He'll do anything. We'll do anything. You know, and just this kind of rah-rah type stuff that, as I critiqued before, it's not that much different than sitting in a sporting event and getting all riled up by the fight song or the... Um, people parachuting down onto the field, or whatever the case, the jets flying over, whatever the case may be. It's, it's spectacle, it's emotion, it's meant to drum this thing up within you. Um, what, of course, is, is wrong with it is it's, it's supplanted and replaced the means, and sac- of, of the means of word and sacrament that Christ himself has instituted. It also then, of course, 
has to do with us, with the human being, with the human community. And that's where, again, it's a little more subtle, but it's absolutely true. If you're sitting in a church and it's constantly, and the main message is your transformed life or our transformed community or transforming other people's lives, where's the focus? The focus is on the human being and the human being and the action taking place within the human being and what human beings are doing for other human beings. And um, what is, and this is Wolfmuller's critique, of course, is when that takes place, when that takes over, you've lost Christ. You've lost what he's doing for us. You've lost what he's giving to us. Of course, there's a transformative aspect. But that transformative aspect is only a result of what Christ himself is doing through his word. It's quite secondary in that sense. Okay, I think I saw a hand. Yes, please. I think you're, talk, you're saying it, but maybe I'm not understanding it. And sure. there's a question from one of the listeners as well. Mm. And it's mm. with regard to if we're working on addressing a repetitive sin in our lives, mm-hmm. how shall we think rightly about are working on that how ah, do we great question with yeah great question great question so in terms of a, of a kind of repetitive sin or a habit or a tendency deeply rooted within our personality the the answer given to us is that we turn in repentance to God and receive forgiveness from God and we do that over and over and over again and then I would also add to we receive instruction and wisdom from his word that can sometimes help us gain a new perspective. And we can begin to see what our sinful impulses really are or what maybe lies even underneath them and better understand that and then work to sort of nip the thing in the bud before it comes to blossom, if that makes sense. I think, I think of this, like to give an example, a lot of... Um, a lot of addictive behaviors, like particularly with substance and that kind of thing, the, the root is deeper. You know, the, the root isn't, and, and maybe, the, and, and yeah, there's a battle to be fought on like, do I grab the bottle or not? Do I, you know, eat the second microwave pizza or not? Like, there's a battle to be fought on those lines. But, but the deeper question is, you know, why do I have that need in the first place? What is unsatisfied deep within me that's causing me to need to seek satisfaction or need to seek relief or escape or endorphins or whatever the case may be in this thing, right? And so I don't want to take anything away, and the Lutheran tradition wouldn't take anything away from the complexity of sin, the role of soul care, the care of souls. That In fact, that's really the classic understanding of the pastoral office is we're trained and equipped to help you see these deeper dynamics, discover these deeper dynamics. Um, but from step one to the final step, the golden thread that runs all the way through is continual repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. And, and that's where, you know, again, and Wolfmuller is going to get to this, one of the missing ingredients in American Christianity is the efficacy of the word. That is, that is the belief that the word of God, present tense, does something. American Christianity has largely denied that. This is why you get many, many sermons that are about God, or about the word, or about Jesus, but they aren't Jesus for you. 
they aren't present tense forgiveness because there's not a belief that the word is efficacious, that the same word that's being spoken through the mouth of the pastor or your fellow Christians is the same word that founded the heavens and the earth, that brought light into the midst of darkness, that brings faith into the, into the midst of, uh, or out of the midst of unbelief. So we'll get to that when we get to the efficacy of the word, but we need to hear present tense that we are forgiven, and that is a powerful, powerful thing. Faith clings to that, and it can then transform us so again, we're not denying transformation. We're just saying the main thing, though, is what Christ is, what he does, what he gives to us. And then, of course, that has effects of transformation and effects of change, no doubt. Yeah. Where it's all transformation and all change and no Christ, you've got American Christianity. You've got something quite imbalanced. And then you have to maybe even ask yourself, what's the difference between this and self-help? What's the difference between this and, and just going to a, a, a kind of self-help seminar? Um, I think it's been, it's probably been a couple of years, thanks be to God, since I've really had to listen to um, someone like Joel Osteen preach. But it's like if, if, he for, if he forgot to say the word Jesus, as he usually does at the beginning and the end, um, what, would you, what would you think that is? It, just like kind of psychology counseling, wit and wisdom, principles that may or may, may not be helpful, um, but nothing, nothing distinctively Christian about it. Does that make sense? Nothing, certainly nothing Christ-centered, certainly nothing cross-focused, certainly nothing heavy on repentance and the forgiveness of sins as the source and summit of all things. Um, you can see then that behavioral change or attitudinal shift, what takes place in man, has completely eclipsed the Christ and the things of Christ. So that's what we're critiquing there. Um, all right, so uh, back, back to the text and back to this pendulum of pride and despair. Now, this is an interesting thing. And, and of course, we can see, we can make our critiques on the basis, as I've just done, on you know, certain pastors, certain churches, American evangelicalism in general, that's fine. But the deeper, the deeper message of this text, though, also, is to realize that we're all fish swimming in this aquarium. And so these things infect us, whether we like it or not, regardless of what denominational affiliation we have. And so we want to be open to identifying these things in ourselves, and thus we can, we can read and, and think profitably. Over on page 23, we get a description of pride and then a description of despair. So toward the top, right where the, uh, where the font gets unusually large for the first time, pride hears God's law and thinks, yeah, I've done that. I've kept that. I've thought that. I got after it and accomplished it, and God must be proud of me. And then your mileage may vary, but, you know, the way that this tends to infect my heart is a little more subtle, a little more pseudo-godly, and it's like, well, or at least as good or better than average. Yeah. <laughs> there's, that, there's that humble caveat thrown in into the arrogant soup there. Yeah, so, okay, so the point is, the point is, when we have God's law and we don't have an abundance of gospel, 
then we have, we have two possible reactions, and the first is pride. Basically, like you hear the law of God, you hear the will of God, and you're like, I'm basically pulling it off, or at least as good as the next guy. Wolf Mueller continues, the proud are the Pharisees, those who, have, those who think they have measured up to God's standard and done what God expected. The proud are always measuring. They measure their own lives and works, and really, they can't help it. They measure the works of the people around them. The proud keep score. This is a necessary part of their theology. Well, and then your mileage may vary too, but I found that people thoroughly infected, they keep score <laughs> for you, <laughs> not for themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's a one-way scoreboard that. If God is marking our accomplishments, then we should mark them as well. The proud can talk about grace and mercy and the death of Jesus, but the thing that really drives their theology is the cleanness of their life. Their works and efforts occupy their mind. They have managed somehow to make themselves pleasing to God. Now again, we, we want to consider carefully that word pleasing. This is pleasing in a justification sense, pleasing in an absolute relational sense of, you know, if I failed to do these things, God would say, out with you. And you can see the setup then of where Wolf Mueller is going to take this. This is the mentality of a servant or a slave or an employee. You know, if I do X, then you'll do Y. And since I've done X, you must do Y. There's a kind of pride and arrogance there. Okay, what about the flip side? What's the other effect that the law alone has on us? Wolf Mueller writes, the flip side of pride is despair. If the Pharisees are a picture of the proud, then Judas is the picture of despair. And we could, of course, add to Judas, we could add um, Cain, Saul, probably pick a king from the, uh, the period of the kings with the divided kingdom. Uh, there are many examples in the scriptures of those who um, have this kind of despairing attitude so the flip side of pride is despair. If the Pharisees are a picture of the proud, then Judas is a picture of despair. Judas knows his failure and sin, but he has no hope, no comfort. The despairing know that they have sinned. They know that they have broken God's law. Like the proud, the despairing are always measuring, but they know that they do not measure up. They try and they fail, and try and fail and fail, and it seems like there is no hope, like God and the world are all against them. They are failures, doomed, lost, forsaken, and condemned. This is the pendulum of pride and despair, the swing of the sinful flesh dangling on the law. And of course, if you diagnose despair a little more deeply, despair is just a different form of pride, isn't it? Because the pride of Judas is that he will not be forgiven. You know, he will not accept God's forgiveness. He will stand on his own two feet or not at all. And since he didn't stand on his own two feet, that's that. No grace, no mercy for me. Which is a distinct lack of humility, lack of willingness to receive from God. And so I think on, on deeper analysis, you'll see that the law simply results in pride 
And then pride tends to take these two forms, outright arrogance or uh, a kind of a, a hidden despair. <coughs> so we, um, you know, from time to time, I certainly meet uh, people who are in this condition and uh, this is indicative of not enough, not enough gospel, not enough faith in the gospel. All right, if we, uh, let's skip over to page 25 and we can get the solution. We can get the solution. You know, over on 24, I'll simply just point out one line that kind of connects the dots for us. It's in that uh, uh, first larger paragraph toward the top. It's the last sentence of it. Wolfmuller says, when we swing on the pendulum of pride and despair, there is no certain answer to the question, what does God think of me? Moment to moment, it changes drastically, fearfully. Okay, then at the bottom of 24, and then we'll get over to 25, which is really where I want to get, but at the bottom of 24, you see he introduces the law gospel alternative. So instead of the uh, pride and despair pendulum, you have the law, law gospel alternative. And here Wolfmuller writes, the gospel is the alternative to the pendulum of pride and despair. The law says do, the gospel says done. The law commands, the gospel promises. The law measures and judges, the gospel forgives. The law tells us how we ought to live, the gospel tells us that Jesus died. And he died with a marvelous and gracious purpose to save sinners. Both the law and the gospel are from God, but they have different purposes. The law condemns, the gospel saves. Now, why would you need a, a, a law that condemns before you have a gospel that saves? Right. Sinful nature is so twisted and perverted that the worse off we are, the better off we think we are. It's one of the, it's one of the great paradoxes of sin. Uh, and it's one of the great paradoxes of apostasy. Those walking away from the faith think that they've never been more healthy in their life, think that they've never been more spiritually whole or sound, um, when in fact the opposite is the case. There's a kind of blindness that, that sin causes, such that we do not see our condition as it really is. And thus, we need the law to point out to us how sick we are. Otherwise, as Jesus says, the well won't receive the physician. So we have to realize that we are sick, and if we are, see that we are sick with sin, we will then receive the physician, we will receive the gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes. So that's the, that's the necessity of the law um, preceding, as it were, the gospel. Would it be accurate, Pastor, to say that you need to understand the bad news before you can appreciate the good news and understand it, or is that? Yeah, no doubt about it, okay. no doubt about it. I think in our own culture, we kind of see this all the time where it's like, you know, if you just kind of go out with this 
enthusiastic and naive idea of I'm just going to go tell everybody their sins are forgiven. It's like, all right, go ahead and try that for an afternoon and see what happens. And people are going to be like, okay, thanks. Great. Why do I need that? I mean, that's literally the answer you'll get is like, I mean, and again, we've diagnosed this a little bit more deeply. The people in our age, um, you know, we don't believe the law. <laughs> we believe the gospel. We believe that there's a good guy up in the sky who likes other generally good people, and I'm a generally good pe- person, and I'm, I have nothing to worry about. When I, I mean, this is the average American idea, isn't it? And who's in hell? Maybe Hitler. Maybe, you know. Um, that's, it's quite the contrast historically from earlier periods, and I would say maybe globally too, outside of the, the wealthy West, there's this idea of there's, there's so much physical pain and suffering and sorrow and trauma in life that people have no problem believing in the law and in wickedness and its consequences and judgment to come. And in that context, it's very hard to, for them to believe the gospel. They can't believe that God is that good, that he's that gracious, that he will forgive. This is much more akin with Luther's context and the context of the medieval era, for example. But in our context, it's almost flipped. Everybody believes that God's a good guy in the sky who just winks at sin and doesn't let it trouble him or anyone else. And just as long as you're happy, right? So... uh, yeah, so that's our difficulty, but, but all the more then, in our context, we have to lead in some way, shape, or form with the law. Or we have to, to wait until the Lord works such circumstances in their life that, that the law and their sinful condition and the fact that we are all on death row finally comes home to a person, and then they're ready to receive the gospel. Okay, so we see that the law and the gospel function together not to function apart from one another. And uh, when we're talking about uh, what the law's chief theological function is, we're going to say the law condemns, and then by contrast, we're going to say the gospel saves. So top of 25, again, where the text gets a little wonky, there are those who preach the law instead of the gospel. Some think the law is the gospel, And some think the gospel is the law. Some modify them and preach neither the law nor the gospel. Those who hold these views rob Christians of the full comfort that is theirs in Christ. Okay, here are the counterpoints to pride and despair that were brought up earlier. Point one, there is no room for pride in the gospel. No boasting, because there is no doing at all. Everything is done. We who are dead in trespasses and sins, the enemies of God and children of wrath, are raised, pardoned, and transferred into his gracious kingdom of life. And of course, there, this paragraph is replete with scriptural references, for those of you who may not be looking at the book, to back up these statements. Okay, point two There is no room for despair in the gospel. The promise of the gospel is the love of God poured out for us to save, rescue, and deliver sinners. God set his mind on your salvation, and he accomplished this salvation on the cross. 
He brings you this victory, this salvation, this mercy, this forgiveness in the promise of the gospel. How can you despair? What will separate you from the love of God? Sin? Jesus died for your sins. Death? Jesus is raised from the dead. The devil? His authority is destroyed by the death of Jesus. And then one line from the next paragraph. The gospel replaces pride and despair with humility and confidence of faith. All right, so there you see the, there you see the counter purposes. Um, <clears throat> when, the, when the gospel comes, it uh, removes pride and replaces it with humility. It removes despair and replaces it with confidence. Um, in what sense does, does it replace pride with humility? Well, because it's by grace alone and nothing inside of us. No works of ours, no doing of ours. And in what sense then does it replace despair with confidence? The same mechanism. There's nothing inside of me. It's all God and his doing. And if it's God and his doing, then it's sure and certain. And this is the great comfort we have, of course, uh, in Christ Jesus, in the word, in the sacraments, is these are things that God does to us and for us, and therefore he cannot lie and does not lie. And even if I know that I'm deeply unworthy, I know that he has nonetheless promised it, and he is good, and he is worthy, and so I trust in his word. Beautiful, beautiful verse from 1 John. Even if your heart condemns you, he is greater than your heart. Or another line from Paul, even if we have been faithless, he is faithful. So our trust, our confidence relies not on anything inside of us, but entirely on him who is outside of us. All right, so humility and confidence are wed when the gospel has worked its fullness within us. All right, yes, sir. Well, hold on one second. We want to get you a microphone. The entire World Wide Web wants to benefit from... I'm, I'm just thinking no the best way to deal with this instead of the book way would be to water down the law a little bit so I don't look so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so a white lie, uh, you know, little things like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as I, that's an interesting thing you bring up. And there's lots of different ways to analyze this. I don't know. I sometimes get tired of it. But um, but but one way to one way to think about it is where the where the law gets watered down, then the gospel gets watered down. And the law gets watered down all the time in this sense. Um, just well, do your best and let God do the rest. You know. That's that's law watered down and gospel watered down. Do your best law watered down, God will do the rest, gospel watered down, um, and you end up with, I think the Latin was facare quad enseest, do that which is within you, which is the ancient version of do your best, let God do your rest. And this was the thing that the Lutheran reformers absolutely despised about medieval theology. They, they could not stand that, because, because why? how can I ever know if I've done my best? It strips and robs of all comfort. I haven't done my best. Now what? Is God not going to do the rest? <laughs> you know? um, 
And is God waiting for me to do my best so that he'll do the rest? That puts a whopping conditional in the midst of what is so-called grace, thus destroying grace. And so, in a, in a sense, the, one of the chief re, you know, reactions of the, of the Reformation was precisely against this point that in English is, you know, do your best and let God do the rest. So we don't want to water down the law. It's not enough to do your best. <laughs> um, and the gospel isn't merely God doing the rest either. So we want to have the, we want to have the fullness of the law, including its condemnation. To break the law in one place is to be guilty of the entire law. The wages of sin is death. We want, we want the full weight of the law. Um, and then we want the full gospel. That Christ took flesh so that he was born of a woman born under the law in order to bear the curse of the law for us. And that's precisely what he's doing. So we have the fullness of the gospel. Fullness of the law, fullness of the gospel. And then of course, of course in Christ all things are made new redeemed, forgiven, the law with no more ability to curse us in Christ Jesus, we then begin to see the law anew. And this gets us then on, you know, in, on, onto another section of theology, a section that Wolfmuller isn't presently meditating on, so we want to be clear, but that's just when we then transition into, well, how does the law function in my life as a Christian then? And we get to this, this kind of the three uses of the law thing. Um, the, are you familiar with this? You remember from your, from your catechism, the, the curb, the guide, and the mirror. and So, so the, the curb is just like the civil use of the law. And it's just, it's this idea that, that God, and very frequently, in fact, almost exclusively as I think about it, through, uh, through people, through society, sets bounds and boundaries of morality. And we abide by those, not so much necessarily that we agree with them, we just don't want to get in trouble or feel the consequence. That's the first use of the law. You know, I don't, I don't obey the speed limit precisely because I want to. Um, there are many times I don't want to, but rather fear of getting a ticket and having to go to court and the fine and all the rest. Okay, that's all first use type stuff. Second use is what we've been talking about here, that the law functions as a mirror. It shows us who we really are. You know, here's the Ten Commandments, here's God's will, how have you done? And it's like, yeah, not very good. So that's the, that's the mirror. And then the third use is the guide. And so that's what we're moving on to now. Once the law has functioned as a mirror, we realize how sick we are. Christ comes and heals and forgives us. Now we're at the third use of the law, which is, okay, now that I understand that God is my gracious heavenly Father, he's forgiven my sins in Christ Jesus, what do I do with this law? Oh, that is the will of my good and gracious Father. And you can see how Luther really picks that up in the small catechism, where he leads off with the Ten Commandments, that this is what the head of the household should teach his family um, in regard to God's, God's will. Okay, so those are the three uses of the law. So in this age, our, uh, the curb, the guide, and the mirror, if we look at society, um, I've had people say to me, God is a loving God. He wants me to live my truth. Mm, yeah. That's like a new catchphrase. Mm-hmm. How do you witness to that? Because you know there's, there's a law. If I let my daughter live her truth, she would have burned the house down several times. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I'm totally, yeah. So that's my response because, because we have to, you know, you have to uncover, you know, the, 
take off the flowery language of what's really yeah. going on there. You're saying like, God wants me to do whatever it is I want to do. That's and what that's what makes him a good and loving father. Think about that for two minutes. That's not at all what makes a good and loving father. A good and loving father cares for the individual child and all the other children in the household as well. And that's what that's exactly how God is. That's what's best loving. for them. Yeah. yeah. And so, so what is the law? The law is what's best for each of us individually and what's best for all of us corporately. And so to say, well, God is love and thus he wants me to break that is a complete contradiction and nonsense, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's no different than, than just you know, inventing your own God who likes all the stuff you like. It's just the American idol, really. <laughs> Not the show, but yeah. But what's really going on is, uh, yeah, we just invent God who likes all the same stuff I like. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Pastor, this may be a little bit off, but, you know, repentance is a key part of our uh, walk and uh, understanding our sin. And in the biblical times, that was shown, repentance uh, was shown with sackcloth and ashes. Mm -hmm. Do we have an equivalent way now that our repentance, I know repentance is a gift from God, it's nothing we do, but could you reconcile why it was visible through an outward expression, almost a work in those days, and how is it shown now? That's a great question. That's a really interesting question. In some respects, there's no showing on the outside of an internal repentance because we're a fairly Gnostic culture. We believe that what's internal is enough and all that matters and what's external doesn't matter. So there is a disease there. And I think more superficially, it's why we say, well, culturally, it just doesn't make sense. You don't see anybody walking around in sackcloth and ashes, and so to do so would immediately mark you as being kind of weird and then maybe even by virtue of you doing that, you're trying to draw attention to yourself and you know, on and on down the chain we go. I think, I think that's the challenge for us in this relatively Gnostic culture is to find ways and means that we can express that without drawing undue attention or being weird, um, but that we can manifest that physically in our bodies. One of the easiest biblical ways to do this is through fasting. And, of course, the church, um, we've gotten away from this. I think it's kind of sad, to tell you the truth, but we've gotten away from this idea of prescribed fasts, um, particularly during the time of Lent. Okay? And it's just where the church prescribes it. The same way a doctor prescribes you something, you can always say no, right? Yeah, of course. So there's not a law being made, like, do this or else you're sinning. You know, do this against your conscience. We would never say that. But for the church to simply say, hey, this is what we're all doing. This is a manifestation of our repentance. Physically, we're going to, we're going to fast for a time. Um, what on earth would be wrong with that? I can't think of anything that would be wrong with that. Not biblically, not according to our Lutheran confessions or tradition. So, Barry, I think that's part of the answer. And then aside from that, I would say it's somewhat, uh, it's somewhat left up to the individual in our context. I'm all, I'm all for exploring, reconnecting the soul with the body and what's going on internally with what's going on externally because our, so much of our culture is dividing that. And that's what I mean by Gnosticism. The Gnostics, of course, viewed um, the, the flesh as something that was, and the body as something that was itself evil and the soul as something that is in and of itself good. You can see how American this sounds. Um, but the whole idea, well, one of the manifestations, one of the extreme manifestations of Gnosticism was 
because my body is evil, I'm just going to let my body do whatever it wants to do. And then because my soul is good, I'm just going to sit there smugly the whole time and think I'm good. <laughs> ah, I, <laughs> that doesn't sound American. I don't know what does. I mean, I, rec- I recognize this painfully in myself that this is, this is the water I've swam in. Is, you know. So, so how, do you, how do you fight against that? How do you change that? And here the ancients, I think, have have much to offer us if we're not too smug and condescending about it and not too fearful of the specter of legalism or something. Um, the reconsidering the connection between the internal and the external. Um, you know, part of that more positively, to switch gears, but part of that more positively is, is um, engaging the body in worship. Not that it's a law that you make the sign of the cross, but what a great way to engage the body in the worship. Um, that you kneel at communion. We're working on getting communion kneeler for those who want that. And again, there's no law. You don't have to kneel. But what a great external uh, expression of what's going on internally. Um, these are the things that I think we can do positively as, as church in this context to re-engage the body. That's why I like you know big baptismal font. We have a small one. That's fine. I just splash water everywhere when we have a baptism. You've probably noticed it gets messy up there. Because why? Because body and material is good. We've got lots of candles. We've got lots of smoke. We even brought some incense back in. We're engaging the body. We're engaging our senses. And we're saying the internal and the external are one. We're one human being. And then, of course, that's going to manifest it in certain ways in terms of repentance, in terms of worship, and in terms of uh, joy, in terms of sorrow. And so we want to reintegrate as, as whole human beings over and against what the West has taught us, this very, well, I don't know how subtle it is, but just this Gnosticism that we drink so deeply of, we don't even realize that's what we are. Pastor. Oh, oh yes, please. Mm, There must be a hundred ways to enter this. These classes make me return to my childhood setting of my teacher, reviewing Martin Luther's Curb, Mirror. Those were the two that were emphasized. What's the other one? Curb, Mirror, and Guide. And Guide. Mm -hmm. Is that what you said? Okay. Um, When we've had, uh, and you're you're referencing your sweet little daughter. I just see her as a precious, perfect child. But um, (laughs) you're saying she would burn down your house. But think of what... um, we learned in our Lutheran school that the that the Holy Spirit is the the is the one that says stop, don't go there in our daily walk and, and think of how the messiness that we've had in America with the burning looting in Seattle, Minneapolis, those people have not had one element of the Holy Spirit's curbing. I just, mm, mm. I just it's just disturbing. That's an interesting test case. Yeah, I mean, to clarify, I should say, I mean, not that my daughter's an arsonist. That's not really what's going on. She's the kind that would like to bake different things and then maybe experiment with baking some toys and then, you know, just like whatever comes to mind. That's kind of, yeah, yeah, like let's see what the consequence is. That <laughs> but, but you bring up an interesting case. So with the looting and rioting that was going on, 
how do we diagnose that in terms of, let, let's diagnose that in terms of the, the pendulum of uh, despair and pride. Because, because what I see, what I see is a, is a Christless kind of movement, to be sure, okay? And then, and then if it's a Christless movement, it's going to be a graceless movement. It's going to be a, a legalistic movement. So is there a, is there a, a despair, a, a woe is me, I'm miserable, I cannot be saved, I'm just going to crawl under a rock and die? Or is there a, a, a pride in the, way, in the sense of arrogance? I'm owed this, I deserve this, if I can't get this, burn it all down. Yeah, so when we, when we diagnose these things theologically, we can start to see, okay, this, this is functioning like a religion. Indeed, in many respects, it is a religion. It's, a, it's functioning as a religion of the law, and by and large, it's functioning in the, in, as the pendulum goes, toward, toward pride and arrogance and sort of the assertion of my own, my own will, my own power, my own divinity, ultimately. Um, and so we can begin to diagnose the sort of religious sects around us in our culture. And we can conceive of ways in which we might um, be able to share the gospel and share a different path um, with those folks. Yes, please. I don't want to stay too far in the weeds on this, but sure. what you're describing in the pridefulness comes only after they've been driven mad with false despair because they've been programmed to believe the police are against you, uh, America isn't for you, you're not part of the community of Americans, you're owed something, you never got it, and then that's where the pride comes. But first they were, I feel, despairing. programmed in despairing. Yeah, it's real interesting to analyze along, the, and I think in many cases you're probably right, perhaps even in most cases. I, it is interesting to analyze along those dynamics because you see, you see there also that the, the despair and pride as such really are kind of just shades of the same thing, you know, or, or at least one gives way to the other very quickly. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. But anyway, this is, I mean, this is fruitful, and it's a fruitful lens through which we begin to diagnose our world, because we know these things are objectively true on the basis of God's Word, so we can begin to diagnose our world and the people around us in accordance with these dynamics. We can see where they are, and we can see, by and large, that people do, you know, they need, they need what, in the context of this conversation, broadly speaking, they need um, a law that says, hey, you know, the law also destroys entitlement, doesn't it? Because the law says, you want to know what you're really entitled to? Yeah, it's hell. <laughs> That's what we're all entitled to. Okay, so we need, we need a healthy dose of the law, but then we also need gospel and grace and the promise that God is indeed on the side of the weak and the poor and he's going to make things right. And, you know, much of the violence of this world is trying to, is trying to bring justice in through violence when that's not ours to bring in. Christ is going to bring in through justice, through violence. Uh, of course, this is what Revelation and many of the scriptures teach. And he's going to do that definitively and finally. And he alone can do that because he alone is just. No one else is just. No one else could do the job objectively. Christ can. He will. So a lot of this too is like, hey, now is not the time to seize it through violence. Now is the time to wait in faith and trust and humility, and Christ will handle things as they need to be handled. 
All right. Um, so what do you have? What do you have in this theology? Of course, you have uh, this this idea that the gospel is for unbelievers, <laughs> and then as soon as you become a believer, you need the law. And so, of course, the 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 counter to this isn't that. Um, well, now that you've become a Christian, you don't need the law; you only need the gospel. And that's kind of been the the move that a lot of Lutherans have made, and it's a wrong move. What we really need is law and gospel, law and gospel always, our whole lives. So this is uh, we need all three uses of the law, and we need the the gospel in its fullness. All right, page twenty six, uh, very top there. American Christianity teaches that the gospel is for the unbeliever not the believer. The unbeliever needs to hear about the cross, but the believer needs to hear the commands. The unbeliever needs the preaching of Jesus. The believer needs the preaching of the commandments. Altar call and the sinner's prayer are for the unbeliever. Advice for being a better parent and strategies for a deeper prayer life are for the believer. I'm dropping down a couple paragraphs. Make no mistake, the law is good, but the law does not save. It cannot comfort the sinner. It cannot comfort the Christian sinner. The Christian sinner, or excuse me, the Christian, needs the gospel just as surely as the unbeliever. That's the take-home point. The scriptures teach and preach the gospel for Christians. Forgiveness is also for Christians. Mercy and grace and the blood of Jesus are also for Christians. There is not a moment in this life when we do not need Jesus and his mercy. And there is not a moment when the Lord's mercy is not for us. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's the, that's the take-home point, and much of American Christianity has kind of forgotten this. There's this idea of, like, you graduate past Jesus, you graduate past conversion, and now you move on to the real stuff, and nothing could be more misguided. Christianity has Christ at the center, and always has Christ at the center, always has Christ and his gifts and his mercy and his forgiveness at the center. And from that, we gain strength to live different lives and live transformed lives and... Uh, repent and fight against the sin within us, the sin and temptations of the world, along with all the powers of the devil. Yes, Bob, you have a, a comment to make. I, I like the phrase law, gospel, law. So I think it's appropriate in, the, in this context. Yeah, there, that's a controversial statement, of course, within, uh, within Lutheranism, and it did, just depends on how you, I think it depends greatly on how you define it and how you think about it. I'm going to trust that you're defining and thinking about it exactly right, but um, yeah, yeah, the question is law, gospel, full stop, or law, gospel, law. Uh, the Reformed historically went law, gospel, law, but I think they did this in a very ham-fisted way. And I think modern Lutherans in doing law, gospel, have also gone about it in a ham-fisted way. Um, that ham-fisted way being law, then gospel, never again any more law, right? So the, the truth, of course, is, and, I, and this is, I think, the point you're getting at and the point all of us would get at once we analyze and get past these extremes, is we want to say that the law and the gospel have ongoing work to do. Um, the, gospel, the law, both negative and positive, both condemning, but then also pointing forward the right way, 
And then the gospel, of course, never ends and um, fulfills, fulfills what we do not fulfill <laughs> in the law, right? Until that day in which, in which Christ raises us from the dead and our hearts are made new and the law is perfectly written within us, and then we need no gospel. You know, and that's, that's just a fact. This is where St. Paul says, um, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Why? Because there's going to come a time where faith passes away. We'll see by sight. Where hope passes away. We're no longer longing for those things that God has promised. They're fulfilled. But what abides forever is love. And of course, if you, if you ask, were to ask Christ what the law is, he would say, love. Love for God. Love for neighbor. That's so... There's a, there, the, again, once we're made entirely new, we're free from the sinful flesh within us, there's no need for gospel. Um, there's, there's only love that abides and the perfect love that we share with the Trinity and with one another as one holy family, one holy communion. So, no. um, I'm one minute over on class. Maybe I'll shut down. We can continue the conversation uh, as we go on. So, so next week, next week, Let's simply pick up with this idea, um, as, we, as we shift gears a little, trusting in good works, moralism, on page 27. We'll pick up there next week. The Lord be with you.